Hey, I'm Justin Anderson, lead pastor at Icon Church. Thanks for joining us for our series through Romans that we're calling Straight No Chaser. It is a look at the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. If you want more information, go to iconchurch.org. Hey all, good to see you, or at least be seen by you, I guess. Um, I was thinking this morning about you, and I realized uh, that I miss you. And it uh, it's probably not a great thing that it's taken me to the end of August to tell you that. It's been like six months since I've seen you, uh, but it's the truth. I do miss you. I miss being with you. I uh, don't love preaching to a, a camera. It laughs at very few of my jokes. Uh, but uh, I do miss you and look forward to a time where we can be together again. I hope that's soon. Uh, let's, let's pray towards that end. Uh, we are wrapping up our Roman series for the summer. Uh, looking forward to the fall series. We're going to be back in Genesis looking at Abraham. Uh, but before we do that, uh, we're going to wrap up uh, Romans chapter 5. And we just got done with Paul making this big argument uh, about justification by faith, right? Salvation by faith. It's what we've been talking about uh, for the entirety of the summer. And, and so you might think that as Paul has kind of wrapped up this argument, um, that we're now at the end, right? Like, okay, we're saved by faith. That's a good thing. We get it. We agree to it. Uh, now what? Is that the end? And in fact, it is not. It is just the beginning, okay? So in this passage, Paul is actually going to look at seven different things that come with uh, justification by faith. And I love that uh, because of this. Whenever I go to a restaurant, I don't know why this makes me think of this. Whenever I go to a restaurant, I'm trying to pick what I want to order. Um, I, you know, all the entrees, they all look great. Do I want the salmon? Do I want the steak? Do I want the, no, never the chicken. But what do I want? And the deciding factor for me is almost always the sides. What comes with the main course, right? Is it fries? Is it a Caesar salad? No, thank you. Is it mixed greens? No chance. Is it fries? That's what I want, okay? So whatever one comes with fries, that's what I'm going to choose. But this basically, this sermon is, here are the seven side dishes that come with justification by faith. And that's fantastic. I love a message that is uh, food related, okay, in some weird way. So this is what we're talking about today. And, and it's important because of this. Sometimes we think about salvation as, uh, as the finish line when in fact it is the starting line, right? So the, the best illustration of this to me is being a runner. I am not personally a runner because uh, why people run when they're not being chased, I do not understand. But my understanding of the sport of running or racing is that start be, uh, crossing the starting line makes you a runner, but nobody crosses the starting line and then stops and goes, I'm a runner, yay, and then just stops and like mills around. No, the whole point is to cross the starting line to become a runner, but then run the race to the end, to the finish line. That's the whole point, I think. And, and the, along the way, the process of being a runner kind of plays itself out in the running, okay? So the point is, Paul's saying salvation by faith, that's the beginning. You are justified, right? So in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have been put into right legal standing with God. We had this debt, we were sinners, but now we've been justified, we've been made right now what? Okay. The now what he's going to unpack in these 12 verses. And I'm telling you at the front, there are seven things. So I have seven points in my sermon. So please 
buckle up because we got to go fast. Okay. So here's what I want you to do. Or here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you what each of those seven things are. And then I want you to see why specifically justification by faith makes these seven things possible. Okay. Then at the end, we're going to kind of zoom out and see this big overarching theme of Paul in this passage. So let's jump right in because we've got seven points. Okay. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's number one. We have peace with God. Verse 10, we're going to skip down here for a second. Verse 10 says that we were enemies of God, right? But that now we have peace with God. Jesus brokered peace between us and God through his death on the cross, right? So part of justification by faith, this act of faith on our part, is us kind of pledging fealty or pledging allegiance to the king. We have, in a sense, bent the knee, to use a Game of Thrones reference, a book series that I have read. Um, and, and this is the idea, right? Like that we have bent the knee to the true king and he has granted us peace as a result of it, right? C.S. Lewis has this great line in Mere Christianity where he says, enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage, right? So we have, in, in our declaration of faith, we have bent the knee to the great king. Now, that gives us peace with God, but it doesn't end there, right? We still rebel against God in our lives. Our, our lives are often lived in rebellion against the king and the laws and values of God's kingdom. And here's where justification by faith and, and this whole concept of the gospel makes this idea possible, right? We rebel against the king, but the king never rescinds or revokes our citizenship to the kingdom because it wasn't based on our behavior in the first place, right? The king granted us citizenship, made peace with us, not because of our behavior, but because of Jesus's behavior on the cross. And so because our peace with God is based on something other than our behavior, it's based on Jesus, then our future behavior cannot undo what it never did in the first place, right? So this idea that we have peace with God is an ongoing, never-ending peace because our behavior cannot undo what Christ did to bring us peace in the first place, okay? So side dish number one peace with God. We are no longer his enemies when we bend the knee to him because of the peace that Christ brokered with us on the cross. Number two, we have been given access through faith. So verse two, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, the part I want us to see about this is talking about grace, right? We have access by faith into grace, which we know, right? Like salvation by grace. But it, the, the phrase here that I want us to pay attention to is this grace in which we stand. 
that grace was not a one-time plea deal that God offered to us and said, okay, I'm going to let you off the hook for all that you have done by grace, like by, by nothing that you have earned, by no merit of your own, purely by my good love and, and will uh, to make that happen, offer that by grace, but then we turn and have to kind of kind of get new grace or get new forgiveness or really try to act right. It, no, that's not the situation. Grace is a perpetual state, not a one-time plea. We live forever forgiven because Christ's death paid for our sin, past, present, and future. There is no punishment left for us, right? Um, in fact, in Romans chapter 8, we'll look at uh, in the future. Actually, before Romans 8, Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering, right? This is Christ's death on the cross. By a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That Christ's death and this being in Hebrews juxtaposed with the Jewish uh, uh, system, temple system of sacrifice uh, that had to be done over and over and over and over and over. And the author of Hebrews goes, the difference between Jesus and all of the sacrifices that are man-made, like the ways in which we kind of pay homage or, 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 or pay for what we have done, it was all of that was swept aside in the single act of sacrifice by Christ. It covered everything, past, present, and future. It's done. It's done. So we stand in an ongoing state. We stand in the grace that was poured out on the cross. It's not something we need more of. It's not something we have to re-up. It's not something we have to get again and again and again. It's ours perpetually forever because by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so there's a, there's a stability in that. There's a constancy in that. There's a sense in which there, there is nothing we can do to undo what has been given to us. And so we live in grace. And the more and more we're able to actually kind of understand, get and relax into that the more we understand the heart of God and the more we understand that our performance is secondary to or, 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 or is a result of that grace in which we stand. Okay, so that's number two. Number three, continuing in verse two, he says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Okay? So the first is that we have peace with God. Second is that we have access by faith into a grace in which we stand. The third is that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, I've explained the glory of God before. It's one of those churchy phrases that we don't always understand. And so um, I like to kind of simplify this idea. The glory of God is simply everything that is great about God. Okay, his glory is just simply everything that is awesome about God, that's his glory. That, that's what makes him great. The things about his character, his behavior, his will that are great, that is his glory. Therefore, what it means to glorify God 
is to make plain what is great about God. So in our words, in our actions, in our behavior, that we can actually reflect the glory of God. We can be that which he created us to be, which then reflects on him to go, wow, this is the way in which God created humans to love each other and to be with each other and to care for the world and to cultivate the world. This is what's great about God, his, his creative character, his ongoing desire and will for us, right? So that's what it means to glorify God. So it means to have the glory of God. Now, in Christ, and this is this back to this kind of idea about justification by faith, in Christ, we can see clearly what's great about God. And when you can see clearly what's great about God, namely that he loved us so much that he paid the price through his son for us to be reconciled back to him, for us to be justified, for us to be redeemed, for us to be sanctified. Like that, that reveals what's great about God, that he was willing to make that sacrifice. Okay. So in Christ, we see what's great about God. And when we can see what's great about God, we can't help but have hope for the future. We can't help it, right? Hope is always future-oriented. Hope is always about what is to come. And right now, many of us feel hopeless or at least have less hope than normal because of all that's going on with coronavirus and everything else that, that just feels so out of our control that the future seems uncertain and therefore in some ways hopeless, okay? Which is why it has never been more important for us to keep our eyes on the glory of God, what we know is good about God. And so this, this whole concept of justification by faith, that God would look down on all of his creation and see the brokenness, see the pain, see the sin, see all of the ways in which his people have rebelled against him. His very creation has rebelled against him. Mankind whom he breathed life into has rebelled against him and has begun to hurt one another and destroy one another. That he would look down on all of that chaos and all of that pain and all of that destruction and his decision was to intervene redemptively that we would be able to see that about God and therefore have hope about the future. So there's a, a saying kind of in psychology or sociology that past performance is the best predictor of future behavior. Let me say that again. Past performance is the best predictor of future behavior. Justification by faith tells us a lot about God's future behavior. We can look back on the cross and go, okay, we have seen the way in which God has acted in the past, and that is a predictor of how he will act in the future. So no matter what's going on, I mean, besides the kind of large-scale pandemic we're dealing with, all of us are also simultaneous. I mean, the, the pandemic hasn't made all of our little problems go away. All of our little kind of uh, sufferings go away by any means. Those are just on top of it all, right? But that we might be able to, in this moment, look backwards to see the way in which God has loved us, to see the way in which God has behaved in the past, not only in Christ, but in the million different ways he has provided for you. He has cared for you. He has given to you. He has been gracious with you. 
and that we can look back on that pattern and go, okay, I can have hope for the future, even though I don't know what the future holds. As the coffee cup says, I know who holds the future, right? And as cheesy and terrible as that is, it is also just true that we can look backwards and see what the future might hold because God's behavior doesn't change. Okay, so we can have hope. Number four, we can also rejoice in our sufferings. Verse three says more than that. Okay, so he's already laid out three things. He's already said we have peace with God. We have access to to grace that we stand in. That's perpetual grace. We can rejoice in the glory of God and have hope in it. But more than all of that, he says, verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, Paul basically goes, listen, um, glory of God, great. Uh, Peace with God, fantastic. Perpetual state of grace, awesome, I'm in. But it's easy to rejoice in all that stuff. I mean, that's just, that's easy. That's low-hanging fruit. He goes, more than that, the power of justification. Again, going back, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, this is one of the implications. This is one of the best side dishes of all. More than all that, we can even rejoice in our suffering. How would we do that? How does justification by faith give us the the ability to rejoice in our suffering? Well, let's, let's follow Paul's logic here. He says, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Okay, so um, the, uh, in James, there's kind of a parallel passage in James chapter one, where James basically says this kind of same thing, and he uses a slightly different language, but he basically says that, that, this, that suffering produces, and what Paul says is endurance, James calls steadfastness, right? That when suffering is rightly understood, that it can produce in us a strength. And this idea of steadfastness or endurance is basically an ability to withstand, to withstand outside pressure, to withstand trouble, to withstand suffering. So suffering, if we rightly understand it, can actually produce in us a kind of strength. Now, if we have learned anything from culture, whether it's Jordan Peterson telling us that life is suffering or the Princess Bride telling us that life is pain, one of the things that we know, whether you're a Peterson or a princess, is that we will always be dealing with suffering. So what what I know, I say this all the time, you are either coming out of suffering, you are in suffering, or you have suffering on the horizon. That's the constant of life, right? So Paul says, We can rejoice in suffering because suffering, when rightly understood, when we have the right uh, perspective on it, can actually produce real strength in us. Okay, so um, I work out, obviously, and, um, and one of the things I think about all the time when I'm doing deadlifts, for whatever reason, it's always deadlifts, because deadlifts is the thing where you put, uh, you know, for me, thousands of pounds on the bar, and, and you just, all you gotta do is stand up. 
right? You're holding on to this bar and you just stand up. But what seems so simple um, is actually uh, uh, terrifying in this one moment always for me. Just right as the bar gets off the ground, I feel like my spine is just gonna whip out of my back, right? Like there's just so much pressure. And, and this is the point at which if I ever quit, and I never have, but if I ever were, this is the point at which I am tempted to quit because the strain and the stress and the suffering of that moment uh, is so great that, that I, it makes me want to quit. And so if in that moment I felt that pain or I felt that, that stress, purely as suffering and I didn't understand what I was doing and I didn't have the context, I just felt that stress and I gave up, I would never get stronger. But if I stand up, keeping my form right and my back straight, Coach Joe, uh, and, and all of these things, and I do it right, guess what happens? I get stronger. And the next time I can add thousands more pounds onto the bar. And I get stronger and stronger and stronger if I can withstand the suffering by keeping my, my good form, by remembering how to suffer well. Okay? So Paul goes, if you can suffer well, then it will produce a strength, an, a, an ability to withstand greater suffering down the road, to withstand harder stress down the road. And what happens then? That endurance or steadfastness produces character, right? This endurance and steadfastness over time, it makes us better. It, it, it produces in us character, or uh, in James, he says it makes us perfect, lacking nothing, complete, okay? Because there is this, there's this work that stress does on us, can do on us, this, this suffering can do where it cuts away the distractions, it cuts away what doesn't matter. Right? And it gives us, it can give us a clarity of purpose and a clarity of meaning that when we are under stress, when, it, when, when, when I'm trying to pick up that bar and everything hurts and everything doesn't seem right about the world, it produces this clarifying moment where I'm able to focus on the things that only matter the most. And I just think about my wife and my kids in that moment while I'm picking up that bar, that's all that matters to me. I'm sorry to all of you, but I'm not thinking about you, right? Like it has this clarifying effect where it cuts away everything else and produces something stronger, something truer, something better, okay? This is the power of rightly understood suffering, producing strength, endurance, steadfastness, and that has this, this cutting away, like a, like a sculptor cutting away marble to reveal his creation that character, Paul says, produces hope. See, when, when we can see clearly, when we can see what's happening around us, we see Jesus at work. Because here's how salvation by faith makes this possible. We have the greatest example of how suffering produces life. The cross. The cross, the, the greatest suffering our world has known, produced also the greatest life that we could ever be offered. So if that great suffering can produce great life, then our smaller sufferings can also produce life. So salvation by faith, justification by faith follows this logic where it says, I deserve nothing. That's where we begin. Talked about that last week. But number two, God has, by suffering, 
given me everything. Number three, therefore, God loves me and wants good for me, and the cross proves that. And then lastly, therefore, he will work this present suffering for my good and his glory. And that is the assurance, that's the hope with which we can enter into suffering and, and, and experience that suffering in a way that has that endurance-building, character-forming power. Number five, verse six. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, Paul and his immediate readers have this super unique kind of experience where they were alive before, during, and after Jesus' death, right? And so they, he has the ability to say, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, that's not our experience. Like, we weren't alive when all of that was happening. So what we have is actually even greater that we weren't even born and therefore had done nothing good or bad when Christ died for us. That Hebrews 10, 14 passage, when his one offering paid for all, we were not even alive yet. So before we had done anything, we were made justified by Christ. Christ died for us while we were so weak. While we were, I mean, we were so weak, we weren't even born, right? Like we weren't even a thought in a thought in a thought. And Christ died for us. Here's what that means. There's nothing that you do that matters. Not, not when it comes to justification. Not when it comes to your place with God. Not when it comes to your relationship with God. There's just literally nothing about your performance that matters because he died before you'd performed anything. He died to make you his. And there's nothing you can do to undo what he's done. Right? So every night I tell my youngest son, Will, who's two, I tell him, there's nothing you can do to make me love you less. There's nothing you can do to make me love you more because I love you the most. And he has been hearing that from me since long before he knew what any of those words meant. Now, as this happened literally last night, he, I, I said, nothing you can do to make me love you less, nothing you can do to make me love you more, I love you the most. And he goes, you love me the most? And I'm like, how did you take that from this, right? He's already trying to defeat his, his siblings. And I went, yes, don't tell. But this is, this is the message of the gospel. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more because he loved you the most on the cross before you had done anything. That is assurance of the love of God. That is one of the side dishes of justification by faith is that you can be assured of the eternal, unchanging, unwavering love of God. Number six, verse nine. Since therefore, he says, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So 
The wrath of God has come up in this pass or in this book so far a couple different times. We looked at in Romans chapter one the present wrath of God, right? That uh, Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And we read through that passage. And what does the present wrath of God look like? The present wrath of God looked like God giving people over to their desires going, is that what you want to do? Are you sure that's what you want to do? Are you positive that's what you want to do? You really think that's going to make you happy? Okay. That's the wrath of God to give us ultimately what we want. And we know that God will not give us his wrath, his present wrath, that we will be saved from his present wrath because in uh, chapter one, verse 21, it says that that present wrath is reserved for those who have not honored God. By bending the knee and pledging fealty that, that we have honored God. And so God will not give us over to our desires. I mean, this is the great hope that we will not receive the wrath of God. And what, the, what that means, the, the unwrath of God is that he will intervene and care for us and protect us from ourselves. But the future wrath of God is, uh, is also a thing. And that we would be saved from the future wrath of God where we will ultimately be held accountable for our actions and for our decisions. And that now that we are in Christ, that we are justified, there is no more condemnation to come, right? There is no more uh, a consequence for our sin. All of that was placed on Christ. But it doesn't end there, actually. And this is just a little teaser for Romans 8 when we get there. But Romans 8.31 says... What then shall we say to these things? And this is just a continued argument, Paul, from five all the way through eight, continuing to build on this idea of salvation, justification by faith. So he then says at the end of Romans eight, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? So catch that, that not only does justification by faith save us from the wrath of God, right? So it, it negates the negative. It protects us from the negative. But then Paul also says, but now God is not just neutral towards us, right? Not, not wrath and therefore neutral, but it says that God is actually for us, that he, his posture is for us the way that I am for my children, that I am for the people that I love. I lean into them. I care for them. I'm proactive in my love and concern for them. I keep an eye out for them. I want to know where they are and what's going on. And how, what do they need and how can I care for them? That God's posture is for us. And, and I, I just wonder like how many of us feel that? Believe that at a, at a, at a, at a, at a visceral level. Not just believe that here, but believe that here and that we feel that God is for us, looking out for us, providing for us. That's the promise of this passage. That's what comes with salvation by faith. Again, because we know that Jesus already has done this. He has already demonstrated that he is for us and that God looks down on all of his creation, sees the rebellion, sees the sin, sees the brokenness, sees all of it. In all, in all of its disgusting rebellion, and his response is to lean in, to send Jesus to solve the problem that we caused. That's how we can know, ultimately, that God is for us. Number seven. We got there, guys. Verse 11. More than that. 
we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We are now reconciled to God. We were enemies of God, and now we are reconciled. Because of Jesus, we have a reconciled relationship with God. Now, I, I think that this is one of those things that like, we can kind of get this at, at, at some sort of intellectual level, but unless we have experienced a broken or fractured relationship, whether it's a, a father or a mother or a spouse or a friend or whatever, like the, the, that gut feeling of disease, that, that gut feeling of loss, that, that fear anytime we might come into contact with them of how's this going to go and what's this going to be like because there's brokenness and there's something, there's something wrong, there's something disjointed, something feels out of place in that relationship. Like it, it's that feeling that, that I want us to think about, that, that that was what we had going on with God, that, that broken, uncertain, does he love me? Does he care about me? Is, is he going to hurt me? Does he, does he hate me? Is he gonna kill me? Am I gonna experience the consequences of this brokenness? And in Christ, we have seen that reconciled. And in fact, it was reconciled by the one who was wronged, which is not a bad marriage tip, by the way, that the reconciliation came when the one who was wronged sought the reconciliation. But I would say even more than that and more importantly than that, reconciliation was brought by the one who wanted it most, God. God wanted it most. God wanted reconciliation more than we did. God wanted reconciliation with you more than you did. He wants reconciliation with you more than you do. Because I know there's some out there listening who are not reconciled to God. There is a brokenness. There's a fractured relationship with God. You're uncertain about how he thinks about you, how he feels about you, where you stand with him. And you've lived in that uncertainty for a long time. And I'm just telling you now, the cross of Jesus Christ is proof that God wants to be reconciled with you right now more than you do. The lengths to which he went to be with you to be reconciled back with you. Man, see that. See the, the action on his part that he is moving towards you and all you have to do is go, okay. I receive all of what you have done for me. Okay. And you're reconciled. There is no, I'll go halfway, you go halfway. That's not it. He went all the way. Y'all are nose to nose. And all you got to do is acknowledge it. That's it. Go, yeah, you did that. You did it for me, and it mends our relationship. He did it all. So, man, seven implications of salvation by faith. I, I, I want to I zoom out real quick because there's, there's something that Paul does here that the translation uh, kind of hides from us a little bit. Um, you've probably remember in the, in the last couple of weeks, Paul had been talking several times about boasting, right? about how uh, if, if salvation by faith is true, it leaves no room for boasting. But if, if salvation by works is true, then that does leave some room for boasting because then we can measure ourselves by our works and we can be better than someone else and boast in, in that. And so over and over, he's talked about boasting. Now, 
He uses that same Greek word three times in this passage. Um, but the translators in this passage translate it as rejoice. So three times we've seen Paul say, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings. And this verse 11 we just read, more than that, we also rejoice in God himself through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That same that word rejoice is the same word for boast. So what's Paul saying here? He goes, as long as, as long as the system, the way the world works is a salvation by works system, basically a meritocracy, right? A spiritual meritocracy that if you can do all the right things, then you get in, then the, then you ought to be boasting in yourself because the whole point of it, the currency of it is what you do, which means you should be the focus of you. You should be worried about what you do and how you do it and how well you do it and when you fail and how much you fail and relative to other people or relative to expectations, all of the focus is on you. And so this Greek word, when it's focused on you, is boasting. But what salvation by faith does is it changes the thing you're looking at. It changes your focus. It completely reorients your perspective on what matters and what currency matters and what gets you anything. And so our eyes go from a mirror reflecting ourselves and therefore kind of this horizontal vision of what matters to then a vertical vision because salvation by faith says the only thing that matters is what God has done. So all of my hope, all of my vision, all that I think about, all that I care about is him. God has done everything. So we look at him. We boast about him. We rejoice in him because of what he's done. And see what, what happens in that is this like crazy transformative thing. Um, there, there's a guy named Thomas Chalmers who wrote, uh, he's one of those dead white guys. That's great. Uh, that wrote many, many years ago, he wrote a book called the expulsive power of a new affection. You get that? The expulsive power of a new affection. And the idea was that the only way to expel an old affection or an old desire, a desire that you don't want anymore, is to bring in a new and more powerful affection. That, that, that's the only thing that has the power to expel an old affection is a new affection. So he, he says it this way. It is seldom that any of our tastes are made to disappear by a mere process of natural extinction, meaning they don't just go away, right? But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed, and one taste may be made to give way to another and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind. So there is a way in which that can be dispossessed. He goes, he's, he's talking about, uh, use the illustration of a, a, a young boy and the different desires and appetites of a young boy. He says this, <clears throat> it is thus that the boy ceases to be the slave of his appetite. It is because a manlier taste, just meaning more mature, less boy, more man, <clears throat> manlier taste has now brought it into subordination and that the youth ceases to idolize pleasure, but it is because the idol of wealth has become the stronger and gotten the ascendancy and that even the love of money 
ceases to have the mastery over the heart of many a thriving citizen, but it is because they are drawn into the whirl of city politics, and another affection has been wrought into his moral system, and he is now lorded over by the love of power. There is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object. Its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but as to its desire for having some one object or other, that is unconquerable. Such is the grasping tendency of the human heart, that it must have a something to lay hold of, of which if wrested away without the substitution of another something in its place, would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. It may be dispossessed of one object or of any, but it cannot be desolated of all. The heart must have something to cling to and never, by its own voluntary consent, will it so denude itself of its attachments that there shall not be one remaining object that can draw or solicit it. Did you catch all that? Sorry, can't all be Princess Bride and C.S. Lewis. We've got to think once in a while, all right? Here's what he's saying. The only way to rid your heart of some desire, some affection, is to replace it with a greater desire or a greater affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. What is that new affection for us? What Paul had called boasting up to this point, that was the natural outcome of a system that, that was salvation by works that had all of its focus on us and our performance and our morality and our ethics and our decisions relative to everybody else has been replaced by one in which they go, Jesus did everything. That is the whole point. That is all of it. There is nothing else. The only way we can rid our hearts of this natural inclination to be so overly focused on ourselves is to be so overly focused on Jesus, to have our eyes on him and him alone and what he has done, not only justifying us by pure grace, but offering to us access into perpetual grace to be able to behold the glory of God, to, to see our sufferings anew, to be assured of the ongoing, never-changing love of God. This is what's on offer to us. And so Paul is asking us to lift our gaze from ourselves to God. And in so doing, we will see a greater affection that can rid our hearts of our old affections. The great gift of justification by faith is that it causes you to stop looking at yourself or anything around you and look only at God. He is the highest and most ultimate affection. The affection above all affections. The one that you will eventually reach if you were to climb higher and higher and higher through every object upon which you could place your affection. You would find eventually that they all have their source in God. So don't waste your time playing around with trifles and put your eyes on God himself. The affection above all affections. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We need you. We are so very, very thankful 
that you did not go halfway and invite us the rest of the way. Nor did you uh, stay in heaven and just expect us to find our way to you. But you looked down and saw the ugly, the heinous, the rebellious, the broken, the gross, and you entered in. And said, the only way that this can be saved, the only way it can be salvaged, the only way it can be redeemed, the only way we can be reconciled is if I do all the work. Not most of the work, not some of the work, all of the work. Not 99.99% of the work, all the work. And you did that. And have asked us simply to acknowledge the fact that you did all the work which also admits that there was work that needed to be done because of our sin. So God, may we see the work that you did for us. May we see that your posture is for us, that you care for us, that you provide for us, that you protect us, that you love us with an unwavering, unstoppable, never-ending love. And that we can find rest in that. Because once we get our heads around that, it, it ceases to ever be about us again, and it is only ever about you. I pray that we would be able to see that fully and embrace it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.